Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. I'm Matt Taibbi. And we are very excited about today's show. We're going to be talking to journalist, CPA, and former congressional candidate, Crystal Ball. Excellent. And I wanted to make sure that people knew, in case you're watching this, we are a podcast. And you can rate and review us and subscribe. You just go to iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You're looking at me like, like I know. You know. I don't you're, know. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. we just wanted to make sure that you knew about it because we're video also. And if you're listening to this, you may want to check us out on video at YouTube and you can then subscribe to us on YouTube. The point is, though, tell your friends about it. Give us a good rating because together we can beat Pod Save America. Yeah, I'm starting to embrace this whole let's, you know. Beat Pod, Pod Save America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Last week, by the way, when we had Amo Bernie, as he's known to people who speak Arabic, which means <laughs> Uncle Bernie, when we had him on, I was, because I didn't have my laptop because it was a bonus thing and it was last minute, and I was looking on my phone, and I think I said, I'm looking on my phone to look things up, don't think I'm being distracted. Yeah, everybody was slaughtering you about that. I know. I could have defended you, but I didn't. That's I just kind of let it Wait, out. Yeah. Don't waste your defense on <laughs> me on this. I can take this. But listen, guys, and if you're listening to the podcast, you don't know this, I'm looking straight into the camera. I was looking things up, and whoever said that it's triggering when someone's not paying their full undivided attention, good. I want to trigger you more. Tell me what All else right. triggers you. Let's look you. on our phones while we do the yeah, rest of the show seriously. now. seriously. How precious is that? Let's not even look at each other. All right, so the four, four food groups of news, what do we have this week? And what do we have in Republican suck this week? Okay, so as p- listeners, viewers know, we have this shtick where we have, uh, there are four types of stories, right? There's only four. So four, Republicans it. suck, Democrats suck, isn't that horrible, isn't, isn't that weird? Yeah, so for Republicans suck, we have um, Trump basically kicking off a homeless campaign, homelessness campaign. And this is from Washington Post. Trump has recently directed his aides to figure out how the hell we can get these people off the streets, according to one administration official. And he's saying they're basically saying policing is going to be an important tool. Yeah, policing may be an important tool to help get them off the street. Yeah, and this is going to bring us back to the 80s and 90s. Trump is already like a throwback to the 80s and 90s. When we elected, we were basically electing like early 90s spy magazine characters. Yes, and and Gordon Gecko plus... Exactly. Humor, yeah. yeah. Short-fingered vulgarian. Yeah. Uh, and this exact same thing happened in the early 90s when homelessness was suddenly all the it was like a, a, a chic issue among both the left and the right. And the, the right wing solution was exactly what Trump was proposing, which was enhanced policing. The people who sort of founded uh, community policing, uh, stop and frisk. The little-known New York City Police Commissioner Howard Safer, who is known here in New York as the odorless and colorless Howard Safer, he came up with this plan to, quote, we will either summons them or arrest them. Mm. And this is essentially, I think, what's being envisaged with this new idea where it's like, homelessness is bad, so we're going to have cops arrest people right. for things like blocking traffic or trespassing, right. you know, fa- failure to obey a police order. And so we're not going to see homeless people for a while. And then there's going to be phony outrage. And then and then people will forget because they won't see homeless people. So there'll be a, a small window of opportunity to, to actually pre- to care or pretend to care. Uh, Democrats suck. This is sort of more of a general observation. This whole Kavanaugh thing. It's every time this issue comes up with Justice Kavanaugh, I always it reminds me of um, like a Three Stooges episode when they when you see them like about to do a construction project and the, if you see them have like a vice grip and a, you know somebody's head is going to end up being sawed off or like they just make a mess of every element of these stories and you know when this latest Kavanaugh thing came out, you, immediately you could see that the Democratic Party was going to be cleaved into camps that were for and against making a big deal of it, and then 
the story came out and immediately there's there's elected members who are arguing about whether or not to pursue it, which is unseemly. You just don't see the Republicans doing that as much. And then then the story fell apart in the media, right? The, the New York Times reporting of it. Yeah, they had a story over the weekend, right? Right. Saying that some more people heard about a woman, Deborah Ramirez, accounting right. having um, a penis thrust in her face. Yes. Right? The word penis is prominent in the story. Yeah, yeah, prominent penis. And then the New York Times, which broke this story, right, tweeted, having a penis thrust in your face at a drunken dorm party may seem like harmless fun. But Who when Brett that? Kavanaugh did it to her, Deborah Ramirez said, it confirmed that she didn't belong at Yale in the first place. I mean, that's a part of it, but it also is just bad to have a penis thrust in your face, Absol- whether or not it confirms some inner narrative you have about whether you belong at an Ivy League institution. Yeah, I, I hadn't made the connection to, first of all, that tweet, harmless fun. Harmless fun, good right. old fashioned. It's better than saying good old fashioned fun, though. Right. That would have been even better. <laughs> but um, then but then on top of that, they, there was they made a mess of the, the reporting of it because the, the story that came out, it turns out that there were a couple of elements that were kind of left out of the reporting of the piece, which of course instantly were seized upon by, you know, the Daily Caller. And they had forgotten to mention the fact that the the person who who was said to be the victim in all this apparently told friends that she didn't recall the incident, which is, it's understandable, yeah. but it's also kind of something you have to put in there if you're doing sure. the story. But the worst part of it was then the, the reporters themselves went on MSNBC and were talking about things that their, their editors left out and put in, which makes it all look like a mess. Right. So the whole thing just turned into a fiasco. It's like, a, you know, politically, it's a loser for the Democrats because they look divided. Right. And, uh, and they also really dropped the ball, so to speak, when they didn't catch him in real time lying. Brett Kavanaugh was lying. Like Nathan Robinson wrote a great piece about this really meticulous piece at Current Affairs just going through not lying about like what happened even, although that was a lie, but contradicting himself. Right. And they didn't do anything about it. And they could have nailed him on it. The best part of that whole thing was him talking about his father and tearing up because his calendar story was so unconvincing. Like, oh, I, I have my calendar right oh, here and it right. didn't yeah, say yeah. sexually assaulted anyone or, yeah. you know, to do sexually assault someone. That was on a different calendar. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. And he's like, why do I keep such a, such a, you know, why do I use my calendar so much? It's because my dad, he used a calendar and he would talk about his calendar at Christmas. He used to regale us with stories, but it sounded like an abu- a weird abusive relationship, first of all. With a calendar? Yeah, just like who, yeah, it seemed like they were traumatized by the dad's calendar. Like it's ha- played way too big a role in the family huh. traditions and uh, holidays. Why did I keep calendars? My dad started keeping de- detailed calendars of his life in 1978. He did so as both a calendar and a diary. He's a very organized guy, to put it mildly. But then, his dad wasn't even dead. He was in the room. He was in the Senate hearing. So it's like, is it that moving to you, really, that your dad likes calendars, that you're going to get teary-eyed over it? Right. Oh, he was the worst. And then, you know, the background of this whole thing is they're arguing over whether or not they should pull out all the stops to stop the Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh's appointment, and yet they still haven't gotten past the fact that they didn't do anything with the Merrick Garland right. episode, which which renders all of this kind of moot yes. in a way. So it's it's just it's a mess all, all the way around. Also, Ben Shapiro did dismiss allegations of sexual assault. You heard this, right, against Brett Kavanaugh. Did you hear about this? No, I didn't. Oh, can I just play this quickly? We've had a bevy of public figures in recent years who have had their genitalia described on national television <laughs> by people who allege sexual assault. Right. Stormy Daniels famously described President Trump's genitalia. Bill Clinton's genitalia 
details of such were, were talked about. Nobody has yet described Kavanaugh's genetic... Now, that's not dispositive. Maybe they were generic. Who knows? But the bottom line is we've had no corroborating details on any of these stories. All of them apparently happened in public places with other witnesses available, and not one witness has been there who corroborates any of these stories. With penis description. So So if if somebody had come forward and and said said it it looks like a narwhal horn or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I I would like to... Yeah, Yeah. where is it? I would like to... to, What is it? You draft someone? Like, I don't want him on our team. Like, I want to kick him off the Jewish team. Oh, you want to cut him? Yeah. Yeah, cut yeah. him. Okay. Cut yeah. him. Oh, cut him. Cut him, genitalia, <laughs> Jewish. Guys. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. So what do we have for, isn't that weird? So according to the Daily, the New York Daily News, a woman in Houston, a beauty obsessed woman, they say, which is an unfair characterization. Yeah, that's that was a strange. Right? Yeah. A beauty obsessed woman apparently decided that aging was not an option when she caught was caught on tape rigging into a Texas spa with a power saw to steal anti-aging products, authorities said. Police in the Houston suburb of Sugarland are now on the hunt for a suspect in the Botox heist, which happened around 8.30 p.m. Friday at Botox R.N. Med Spa. The three-minute surveillance video shared by police this week shows a woman desperately trying to force herself into the business without using any tools. The thief was not wearing a mask or gloves. After failing to open the front door with her bare hands, the woman brought her SUV closer to the spa and took a battery-powered grinding saw to cut into the door, the footage shows. The video does not show her leaving the facility, but police said she walked out with a number of anti-aging products. And they then give a description. They say she was... Well, uh, the thing is, you don't need a description. So what's, what's amazing about this is that they, they, they have this all in video, right. right? And it's a very clear... They show that she's in a Mercedes SUV, mm-hmm. right? With no front license plate. No front license plate. And she, and, and you can see this woman's face. She's, she's dressed in like a pink yeah. top and, sw- and sweatpants, right? And uh, you can see her very clearly. Like, clear, if you know this person, it's obvious that you, right. you could recognize her. And, and so she... She can't get in, and so she goes back and gets the power right. saw. She's pretty resourceful, though. Yeah, but so this was this happened a couple of weeks ago, and it, this was broadcast all over the news. Oh yeah, in, it did happen in, in, in yeah. Houston. And they, what I thought was interesting is I saw this story a while ago, and they haven't caught her yet. Right. And I, I feel like they offered a reward. The spa has offered the spa, a reward. Yeah, five thousand dollars. I want to reach out to this person like i don't know i just feel bad about her yeah should we offer do you think rolling stone will put up some money for us to offer an award to her (laughs) for (laughs) turning herself in i don't know i don't know i mean don't you just it's a heartbreaking story right we should just tell her that it's okay she doesn't need botox i know but we live we'd be lying because the world is so harsh and so you know superficial right but beauty does shine from inside right so so basically we want we want the useful idiots audience to look at this video and and if you know her, to yes. help us reach out to her so that we can tell her it's okay and, yeah. and we can start to... Yeah, and we could have her do... Maybe she could even like do consulting, give us makeup tips. Right, or yeah, skin exactly. tips. Yeah. She could also give us some of the products that Right, yeah, we, we could sample. What if she's still in there, though? They say that they didn't see her leaving on the footage. So what if she's still in there? <laughs> she's still in and there. And sampling she's, stuff in the basement or she's something. She's trapped. Anyway, isn't that horrible? Take it away. Yeah, uh, do you want seals or pigs? Oh, God, I love pigs. I like both of them, though. You got to pick one. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Both of them get killed? I mean, it's bad. Yeah. Seals. Let's, let's, I like seals. pigs more. Uh, all right. Um, well, then we have a problem with uh, seal deaths in uh, the Bering Strait. They're seeing five times as many 
uh, bearded seals uh, dying, and they don't they don't have a cause uh, for that. And so, why are we telling you this? It's not to inform you. This is a news program, and essentially, what we're trying to tell you to do is is that the entire world outside of your broadcast experience is unsafe. The oceans are basically cauldrons of death. Right. You shouldn't go swimming in them. You should stay at home and listen to podcasts all day and specifically yeah, this, this one. one yeah. So because whatever's going on in they don't know what it is in the in the Pacific Ocean, but it's killing seals, which are a much stronger animal than you are. So Oh really? That's right. a good point. Yeah. They're so just more robust. They're more I mean like neuro animals, right? Right. Yeah. So they don't need like Netflix and So seals are dying at toast. five times the usual rate. Don't go outside and uh, listen to the podcast. All right. So that's right. that's the news this week. Yeah. Uh, what what do we have? We have homelessness is coming back briefly then um, the, the Kavanaugh thing is continuing to be right. a mess for, for the Democrats. Then Botox lady. We Botox lady still at large and everything is killing animals outside of your house and don't go outside. All right. So a couple of news items I think are worth talking about this week and some of them are undercovered. A couple of them are things that I've written about before. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about. Um, one that really caught my eye was um, a story. Google changes algorithm to pri- prioritize, quote, original reporting. And this is... Uh, a thing that I think a lot of Americans are not aware of was sort of informal, unelected regulation of how media works. Google, since the 2016 election, has changed the way that it shows you the news or search uh, results uh, appear a couple of times in a big way. And people don't realize it. And it's had a huge impact on how we see the news. And the first one was a couple, was I think in the 2018 when they they elevated authority uh, right. over familiarity. So the, the idea was that they have all these sort of human reviewers who go through all the content and they score it. There's a survey that, that creates the algorithm, but it, it stresses things like, does, this, does the source have awards? Has the source been right. recognized by, you know, as a journalistic authority? And then it downplays other things. So the, the example, when I called them up to ask them how this worked, they said, like, for instance, if you type in baseball, in in Google, uh, in the old days, it might have showed you like little league, your your local little league. It would show you like the baseball league that's like closest to you, or you know, the, it would be some other thing. Now it shows you MLB.com, Major right. League Baseball, because that's you know that's sort of the big recognized authority. And so obviously, the impact this has is that it's it stresses big sort of commercial news organizations over over smaller independents. Uh, and you saw when this happened the first time, all these websites, these independent al- alternative websites, saw huge drops in traffic, like World Socialist Website, Alternate, Global Research, Consortium, Socialist Worker, Media Matters, Common Dreams. They all saw precipitous falls of like 30, 40% in traffic, like almost overnight when this happened last time. So they've done this again. Right? So that was like last year and now, or the year before. And now they've done orig- originality. Is, is the new thing. And what that's going to be, that that's going to end up accentuating results and clicks for news organizations that have the budget to right. produce original reporting, which on the one hand is good, but on the other hand is, is going to severely devalue right. probably people who are commenting on things, who are independent. I mean, I, I think it's an interesting thing. I think people don't realize that it's going on. Right. Uh, or aggregators, right? I aggregators mean, are going to be punished. Like Common Dreams, for instance. Common Dreams. One, a big it, one, which I've, I've written for. It's pretty clear that the, these new 
algorithms, they, they really, really punish independent right. alternative media pretty severely. And they have a direct impact on their bottom line because, you know, search results result in traffic, which right. results in money, right? Yeah. So, And um, we talked about this once on my show about how the, one of the disturbing things about the way these things are kind of evaluated is that you get the official, like the official versions that are distortions of reality, those kind of get a pass, right? right? So like if you're a reputable site or reputable news organization, then, and you write, you know, about WMDs, like Judith Miller, right? She would get like a a big pass at the time from something like this. That's like a deviation, right? So they, 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 they consider that sort of an oopsie. Right. right, but if you if you're a person who writes about chemtrails, like you know you're 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 sifted out. Sure, completely. right. Not that we're big chem, we're not. No, big no, chem, of course but, not. Yeah, but no. it is. It, in some ways, it's more. It's scary because, like, by virtue of the um, the imprimatur yes, of these things. The word, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. No, that, that that's exactly the problem. Is that you think that you're getting a vetted product, right? Exactly, and you're not. Right, you're just getting something that's less vetted by reputation. Right. Right. And, and right. you're, you're, it's, on it's unconsciously sending you messages about what's more authoritative and what isn't right. when it's really not correct. You know, I mean, the, the old system basically charged the consumer, the newsreader with making decisions about who was more reliable and who wasn't. Right. right if, yeah. you, if, if you liked that newspaper, you read it more. Yeah. Right. If you if you felt that felt they were reliable now, they're help, they're making that decision for you a little ahead of time, which is a little scary. But there's 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 a larger issue here, which is that, you know, it's much easier to have control over how people see the news now under the under the guise of we're trying to improve the consumer experience and keep you away from fake news right. but we'll also you won't see consortium as much right and, or the world socialist website you know whatever it is so that that happened yeah so one more story that was interesting uh and i wrote about this a couple of years ago and it's it's a convoluted difficult story and it's basically not covered in the news very much but it's it's really interesting to me, mainly because it's undercovered. During the financial crisis, one of the stories that I, I followed because it was part of things that I was covering involving the bailout was the fate of Fannie and Freddie, which are the you know the big housing authorities. And the, these are quasi-public companies, quasi-private, essentially. They're, 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 they fulfill a utility-like function, but they were essentially private companies. And they're enormous. They're, you could make an argument that together, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are the biggest financial company in the world. They have about $200 billion in revenues annually. So that's above Bank of China, above Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase. After the, they were bailed out in 2008, the government gave them about $187 billion. And the bailout was really bizarre. Originally, it gave the government an 80% stake and a 10% dividend. So they were supposed to give a piece of their revenues every year. And then a couple of years after the bailout, it was sort of unilaterally decided that, no, we're going to change the terms of the bailout. We just want all the money that you make. And so the government get, got this thing that's called the net worth sweep, where essentially the terms of the bailout now say uh, that the government gets 100% of all net revenue that goes to Fannie and Freddie, which obviously made people who are shareholders in the company a little upset because mm-hmm. you know they're now being disenfranchised. And there are a couple of things that are okay. weird about this. One is that... It seems not to be legal on multiple levels. The government is only allowed to get money through taxation, and the only authority that's allowed to do that is Congress. The other thing is nobody knows where this money goes, and mm. it's an enormous sum of money. Uh, you know, just in the first, in one year alone, there was $130 billion, which is like real wow. money even by government standards. Right. So there's been this huge court case about this that has gone on. There's been a multiple, actually. 
and it really hasn't been covered. And it's been there's been a back and fight, uh, back and forth fight between the government and the Federal Housing Finance Authority, which is the regulator that oversees this bailout. And finally, the first week of September, uh, a federal circuit judge ruled that the FHFA, which oversees Fannie and Freddie, is an unconstitutional authority. And this means, to make a long story short, that sometime in the next probably 30 days or so, there's going to be a decision probably about ending this crazy arrangement, at which point I thought maybe we could do have somebody on to talk about this. Yeah. But, but it's... Fanny it, or Freddie. It's, yeah, it's Fanny, Fanny Gate. It's, yeah. it's, it's a crazy story, and it's, just, it's interesting to me because it's, it's a sum of money that normally you would see talked about a lot in the media. Right. And it's, it's one of the biggest companies in the world. And there's, just, there's basically like two stories about this. So how much money is it again? So the Fanny and Freddie, they, their annual revenues are probably north of two hundred billion dollars. Okay. So that makes them that would make it together. That would be the largest. Right. I'm trying to um, like envision or conceptualize what that is in relationship to other things. Like, well, if you think about the the federal, let's say the military budget sure. is seven hundred and you know thirty seven billion dollars. Okay. Right. So you're talking about like a you know a third or a fourth of right. that. So it's an enormous sum of money, right? But the the interesting is it's it's hard really to get answers about huh. any of this stuff. It's not on the budget anywhere, and it's just a crazy, crazy story that doesn't get reported very much. I'm torn because I like that they're getting their money taken away from them. You do? Oh, of course, yeah. Okay, why? Because aren't they bad? Fannie and Freddie were had a lot of problems, and they were and the the, the leadership of the company was deeply corrupt, pre-2000 especially. Right. But Fannie and Freddie, on their own, they fulfill a pretty valuable role in society. They help a lot of people buy houses. That's that's okay. kind, of, kind of what their mandate right. is. And they, yes, they, they make a lot of money, um, but it's it, it, it has a sort of utility-like function in society. Mm-hmm. Without it, it would be really tough for the housing markets to function. Um, and, you know, just taking the money right. would be a pretty, pretty crazy precedent. Yeah. Because uh, if they could do that with the, the, the thing is, they didn't do that with other companies. Right. They bailed out lots of other private right. companies. Well, maybe that's what that's what we should be fighting for is is theft from more companies. <laughs> we should take it from all. Yeah, of them, we should take it from more. Goldman. Yeah, and, and, and it's, like, it's the opposite. Exactly, and it's the opposite of you know the Felicity Hoffman story, right? right. Where she was sentenced to two weeks or something. Right. Um, for this doing the same, doing something way worse than what a black mother, a black working class mother did. She, this black woman, like literally used her father's address so that her kid could get into a better school. In 2011, Kelly Williams Bolar, an African-American single mother from Akron, Ohio, was sentenced to five years in jail for using her father's home address to get her kids into a better school district. That sentence was ultimately suspended to just 10 days in jail and three years probation. Many argue that Bowler is not that different from actress Felicity Huffman, who was sentenced this week for paying to inflate her daughter's SAT scores. Both did what they did to get a better education for their children. That is the argument we've heard. But there is one difference, the punishment. Huffman was sentenced to just 14 days for her role in the college admission scandal. Two weeks. But you see online, at least, there's this tendency to be like, she should go to jail for longer, as opposed to, it's like a race to the bottom. Like, right. no, we want other people to not go to jail for as long. Right, yeah, exactly. That When I wrote the book, The Divide, a yeah. lot of what I was looking at was people were saying, well, yes, all these companies that committed fraud in the subprime mortgage markets, like, they should all go to jail. 
I'm not necessarily sure that that was the answer. There should have been some punishment. Yeah. But the, the big thing is people who were, were actually going to jail for welfare fraud. Right. right. So yes. you're talking about people who are, you know, for $200, $300, right. you know, or or there's something silly like a woman is receiving welfare because she's uh, claiming to be a single mother and the inspector finds that she has a boyfriend at right. home who's pr- contributing and then she gets in trouble right. and yeah. loses her kids. Yeah. I mean, awful, awful yeah, stuff. That's, yeah. th- that's the stuff we want to we stop. Right. Exactly. Right? Not in the other direction. Yeah, necessarily. Right. Yeah, yeah, sometimes, yeah. I mean, as you can see, I'm for, you know, confiscating the property of companies. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that um, I get, maybe in theory, I get how it could work as a deterrent almost, not as a deterrent for, but it's a question of enforcement and judges just decide on it. Remember affluenza, which was that disease that this wealthy white kid had who like mowed a bunch of people down. DUI. Oh, that's right. Yes, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And people like want him to go to jail for a lot longer. And of course, I totally get it. And maybe I, I get how part of the theory is like, if we punish the make this more punishable and richer white people are subjected to it, then maybe people will support reform. Right. But I think it's a question of there's so much discretion anyway. Yeah. That it's not going to work. I don't think you have to. If you just take the example of the financial crisis, for instance, you have people who are committing, for instance, fraud in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So. If there are people in jail for fraud, for welfare fraud, for yeah. instance, so, somebody has to probably go to jail for stealing three hundred or four hundred billion right, yeah. dollars. Right. But I'd rather they be freed. The welfare yeah. people. You're, yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna put somebody in jail, make it, you know, at least a few symbolic cases right. prob- probably would change behavior pretty yeah. quickly, right. and then there might, people might think about criminal justice reform too. Right. Exactly. You know, which, yeah. So it'd be a win-win. I think you just got to make it more even no matter what it is. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So that's, uh, so we're going to be talking to Crystal Ball. Yeah. Who's great. Uh, she's done some really great monologues on her show Rising, which is on Hill TV. She's done some great monologues about MSNBC, about Russiagate. She's talked about the Bernie Bro narrative. She's talked about media bias. She ran for Congress in 2010. Then she was on the cycle on MSNBC we're also going to talk to her about this really great appearance she had on Real Time with Bill Maher. She's just really, she's very fierce. Great. Well, let's, yeah. let's talk to her. Yeah, let's talk to her. Welcome, Crystal Ball. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been wanting to have you on since the beginning. Welcome. Aw. Well, I love, I would not say this if, like, I just thought the podcast sucked. I would just not say anything. Right. But I actually, it's actually really, really good. And thank it you. has improved my life to have you guys to listen to in the car. So wow. thank you. Wow, fantastic. I think that's our first sort of promo. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah, there thank, it is. Thank you yeah. so much. That goes on the, the blurb when we write the book. Right, um, yeah, exactly. Useful idioting. idioting. Right, I yeah. Useful idiots, yeah. Right, useful idiots for idiots. Yeah, right, useful yeah. idiots for idiots. Yeah, we definitely got <laughs> to do that, yeah. Um, so you were on um, Real Time with Bill Maher the other day. And you had a kind of viral moment where Bill Maher kind of unbelievably suggested that the compromise candidate who could beat Donald Trump was Amy Klobuchar. And they need a compromise candidate. I'm looking hard at Amy Klobuchar. You know why? Because, like, this is not an insult to Amy Klobuchar. I like you. But when they put generic Democrat on the ballot, they win. There's an amazing shot of Crystal. You're like... It looks like you're trying not to either throw up or, or, or laugh. Unclear which one, maybe both. Can you tell us about that moment and about the point that you made? Hold on a, a second. Wokesters, and then she's Why a si- do you think 
that economic populism, whatever you want to call it, socialism, democratic socialism, etc., Medicare for all, is so unpopular. When a poll just came out that had Bernie Sanders beating Trump in Texas by more than any of the other candidates. The last 20 polls have shown Bernie Sanders beating Trump. And here's the other thing, though. Meaning? Meaning that you don't need a centrist to win. Centrism is why we have lost. It's why we lost well, a thousand state of, house yeah. It's why we lost the White House. We ran a centrist. But, 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 we lost. But, but, I mean, you know, <laughs> the, what went viral really was that face, like my face went viral because I just, you know, I reacted and the cameraman happened to catch my look because it's just so absurd to think that the way we should go about trying to win as Democrats is by running a centrist. We ran a centrist last time. And we lost. Not only that, but if you look over the course of the eight years of the Obama administration, Obama did not run as a centrist. He ran as a transformational right. candidate. We won. And then as he governed as a centrist, we proceeded to lose most of the country, the House, the Senate, and then ultimately the White House. So, look, I think Bill Maher is like a very well-intentioned guy. He's a nice guy. He's really thoughtful. He's really trying to figure out what the right path forward is here. But I just think there's such a mentality that is constantly reinforced in the media that you have to have a centrist to win, that any sort of facts and data yeah. that you put up against that, it just like goes in one ear and comes out the other. I mean, having covered campaigns for a long time, don't you think this is just sort of conventional wisdom that gets tossed back and forth between reporters because that's what they think? I mean, they, they, they've been repeating a lot of these uh, campaign cliches to each other for so long that the only way to win, it's like this 1996 paradigm that you have to be somewhere between a Republican and a Democrat to get the most possible votes. But the, the electorate has completely changed, especially recently. And it seems like people in the, in the press especially haven't caught on to that. Yeah. Right? yeah and I think there, you know, there's a generational issue where there's a certain generation of Democrats that was just so scarred by like Dukakis and then Clinton being able to win. But again, Clinton's actual first campaign, he ran as an economic populist. Right. He did not run as the counter scheduling, like triangulating focus group tested thing that he's come to be known as. But I actually think it goes deeper than that with the media, because you have to think about who the media is trying to reach, right? Who advertisers in the media are trying to reach. They're trying to reach this sort of mm. affluent neoliberal base that's very comfortable being liberal on social issues, right. but is not so comfortable being populist on economic issues, right? right. The right. sort of white affluent upper middle class. And that's a very small segment ultimately of society, but they're very much disproportionately reflected by and represented in the media. And they're the ones that love to hear like, let's be socially liberal, right. but let's group on social security, let's not raise the minimum wage, nobody wants universal health care, right. despite the fact that poll after poll after poll says the exact opposite. Right. So do you think these people know this and being are being disingenuous or are they just no. so cut off from the way people actually think and feel? I don't think it's disingenuous. I really don't. I think it is what they genuinely believe. Um, because you have to think about, we're so influenced by who we're surrounded by, right? right? So I've talked about this in the context of Bernie Sanders' campaign. I think a big part of the reason why he's treated with such dismissive contempt by most of the media is because his supporters are disproportionately working class. Mm -hmm. His donors are the number one employer of his donors is Walmart, right? They're Walmart workers. They're teachers. And these are just not the people who the media is surrounded by. They don't know these Walmart workers, right. so they just can't wrap their head around the fact that he really has a base and really has an appeal. 
and you've written a lot in your book. There's an amazing moment where you talk a little bit about the disconnectedness and cluelessness of this particular group of people. I love your description of what you call the nerd prom, the the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And you made a great point in the book that. That really, the White House Correspondence Center. You could blame the entire catastrophe of modern America on on that 2011 event. Where was it? 2011, where Obama went after Trump. All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, <laughs> for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah, it's this incredible moment where, you know, Trump, who has the ultimate chip on his shoulder, who has always been the guy from the boroughs rather yeah. than Manhattan News, totally. always wanted to fit in and never has. And here he goes to the nerve center of the political elite and is just laughed down in the room. And so much stems from that. But it's also a metaphor for for the way that, for what he actually shares in common with his base, because a lot of people said, this guy's a billionaire, like he doesn't get you, he doesn't understand you. But they saw themselves in him because they saw another guy who'd been viewed with contempt right. by the elites of the country. And the reality is, and this is not, you know, this is a bipartisan sentiment. The Democrats, it's not just a Republican thing, they really have looked at the working class, the multiracial working class in this paternalistic, condescending, filled way. People always say, talk about how Donald Trump and his base, they don't have anything naturally in common. He's a billionaire and all that. But what, but as you point out, what they do have in common is disdain for that particular group of people, right? right? Like the people who, you know, who, who are walking on the red carpet into the White House Correspondents' Ball and... Um, and I think that, that was great the, the way the way you put that in the yeah. book. Michelle Wolf at her cars at the White House Correspondents yeah. Dinner. I don't know if you saw that, but she kind of made a similar argument um, about how these these people help create create Trump in some ways. In fact, she said at one point, "Do you guys have a crush on Trump? Because you're obsessed with him. You <laughs> won't stop talking about him." Um, well, I think that's right because it's either you're either ignoring the sort of multiracial working class of the country entirely, or you're treating them as like some anthropological right. study, right? right? It's right. never like this coverage is about you for you. It's like, look at these exotic creatures, exactly. or it's contempt, or it's completely invisible. And how did your biography affect the way that you view these things? Speaking of talking about something like it's an anthropological study, but... <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm uh, in this car talking to you because I still live in my hometown in rural Virginia where the, there is really no broadband access. So, <laughs> so, you know, I grew up in Red America. I still live in a town in Virginia that is overwhelmingly Trump supporting. Um, but the part of my life that was most influential for me politically was when I was in my early 20s, I moved to this um, industrial mid Midwestern town in Ohio. It's called East Liverpool, Ohio. And it used to be known as the pottery capital of the world. All the like dishes and plates in the world were made there, pretty much. That all went overseas to China in the 50s. But there was a steel mill in the next town over with thousands and thousands of good middle-class union jobs. Well, that went away in the 80s. And so now the town is mo known best for a picture that went viral of, you know, two adults who had OD'd in the front seat with a toddler strapped into a car seat in the back. Just a horrifying image. 
And I don't want to paint too negative of a picture. I loved living there. I still go back there. I still have many dear friends and neighbors there. But it was my first time living in a town that had seen that kind of complete economic destruction, right? Destruction really wrought by a bipartisan consensus around free trade and corporatism. And as I went up and down the Ohio River there, um, every single town, it was the same story. So that's really what has sort of informed my politics. You know, I feel like I have one foot in a green room in New York and one foot in the industrial Midwest and one foot in Kentucky, where I also lived for a number of years. So I kind of have have lived in both worlds and and can see where people come from. One thing that I think people miss as part of this is the difference between economic progressivism and cultural progressivism. Um, Economic progressivism is really not a problem anywhere in the country. I think the social issues are actually more challenging. And the Democratic Party over the years has actually gotten that exactly backward. They've led with the um, the kind of cultural, liberal cultural signaling rather than the economic issues, the progressive populist economic issues that are popular essentially everywhere you go in the country. And you can lead with those and then kind of like reach people on both of those issues, I think, more than That's exactly- the other way around. It's about the emphasis. That's yeah. exactly right. What, what do you think about the Working Far- Families Party endorsing uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, this week? It's a little baffling. It was a little strange how they rolled it out, right? Um, you know, first they put out that she won 60-some percent, but then we learn how the process works, and 50% of the vote goes to their tens of thousands of members, and 50% of the vote goes to the leadership of the Working Families Party. And unlike last time, they were happy to put out that 80-something percent of the members voted for Bernie Sanders. This time, they don't want to put out right. who the members actually voted for. So you can kind of read between the lines here. The leadership wanted Warren. They're hedging their political bets. They think she's on the rise. They think she's the one that can sort of be the consensus candidate. The membership is either torn or outright supported Sanders. So, you know, the other piece of this is whatever you think of Bernie Sanders, he is the candidate who has most consistently actually had a multiracial working class base. And Elizabeth Warren has a very different coalition. The more more affluent you are, the more likely you are to support Elizabeth Warren. The more highly educated, the more likely you are to support Elizabeth Warren. So it's a little strange, frankly, to see party that calls itself the Working Families Party not backing the candidate that it's actually backed by working families. Yeah, it should be like the Working Family Leaders Party. Leadership <laughs> yeah, exactly. Party. They I mean, it's, it's superdelegates. That's basically right. what they do. They're like, well, we have our own version of superdelegates and we're going to decide ultimately. Certainly right. what it looks like. But I thought Bernie's report, uh, supporters were all straight white dudes and um, Bernie bros. Uh yeah. And, 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 you know, Warren had a diverse, um, like, rainbow coalition of intersectionality and stuff. But, right. Yeah. yeah. Have um, you seen well, people? Her, Sorry. She does have her gender pronouns in her Twitter bio. Nothing wrong with oh, that. Oh, really? But, I didn't know that. Yeah. She, her? Oh, cool. All right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, look, never talked about in the media is the fact that the strongest candidate with Latinos is Bernie Sanders. Right. Never talked about You got that in on that, real time, which right? is great. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the it, candidate among black women, young black women, is Bernie Sanders. No one ever talks about no. that. So, look, you cannot like him. You can exactly. It's fine. Right? I totally but, agree. But, like, let's be honest about who he appeals to and what his coalition is all about. Yeah. 
and how he polls against Trump. Again, you can dislike the guy. I like Nader. He was not a good candidate. He was not a good campaigner. I like Sanders. He is good at those things. You know, like, again, I can we can separate out whether you like someone and whether they're good, um, whether they run well against someone else. Exactly. Yeah. And the the polling that shows Joe Biden doing well against Trump is taken very seriously. Right. And the polling, all of the same polling that shows Bernie also doing equally well against Trump is just 100 percent dismissed. Yeah. It's just you can't. It's too early for polls or you can't rely on polls or that's what they said in 2016. Yeah. And and you wrote about this, too, um, where the whole idea of you talk about how economic progressivism and cultural progressivism, how we have we, we, the party has it kind of backwards, that they, they lead with one and kind of try to get to the other. But you talk about how they want to sort of tweak the message rather than actually adopt new policies. They're, they're looking for a new way to score right. uh, on, on the economic progressivism front without actually del- delivering. Yeah. Is, isn't that, is that kind of what you're saying? Like they think it's a marketing problem yeah, and not totally. actually a political problem. Yeah. Is, Messaging, is that- not policy, right? Yes, that's exactly right. And I don't know how many rooms you sat in, um, but I sat in a lot of rooms after the 2016 election where there was a lot of discussion about how we rebrand the party. Right. Right. When the problem really isn't the branding. Honestly, people kind of know what the party's about. That was the problem. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were like, no, we we get it. Y'all aren't really going to do anything for us. We, we totally understand that. So, you know, one of the things I believe a lot in and is part of why I do talk about Sanders and his coalition um, is that if we want to regain credibility, we need to we need to put working class people actually at the center of our party as our leaders, as our messengers, as the people who are coming up with these policies and plans and telling us, like, this is what would work in my community and in my life, like actually rather than just telling the working class what we're going to do for them, actually asking them what they would like and giving them the power to make that a reality for themselves and their community. So it's kind of a fundamental shift in thinking. So, yeah, I think one of the fundamental differences between Sanders and Warren is he really trusts the working class to be in control of their own destiny. His fundamental proposition of his campaign is I am going to change who has power in the country fundamental proposition of Warren's campaign is I'm going to come up with a plan to help you. That's different. That means you still get to control the rules and hold on to power. And that's why like her cups are selling out in the Hamptons, right? The quintessential home of the elites, because they know that there will still be a check. They will still fundamentally have the same power structure in place. And that's a much more comfortable thing for them. I I like Elizabeth Warren, uh, especially when during the financial crisis. I mean, she she was much more literate on a lot of these issues uh, than than most other politicians were. But this whole I have a plan for that. Um, it, my my issue with it is more about the political efficacy of it because it's as, exactly as you're saying it's it's sort of a, a you know a cult of worship of experts and expertise and sort of technocracy te- te- technoc- te- technocratic excellence and all that and what that speaks to is the, you know the, what the Democratic Party doesn't realize is that people hate experts you know out out, out there in where people where their electorate is what pe- people don't 
have any contact with billionaires or CEOs of companies, but they do meet all the time, you know, lawyers uh, and, you know, people who run their schools, who run their middle management and, right. and companies, and they hate those people, right? right? And so I don't, I don't understand this, this urge to run as, a, as an expert who's going to give you advice on things. That's what, isn't that what people hate? Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, it's, that's I, what it seems to I me. I think that's very well said, Matt. Um, and there's, I think it's not fair to compare Elizabeth Warren to Hillary Clinton. But, right. in, but this way, yeah. in this way, they are similar. They're in the same model as John Kerry and Al Gore and all these other Democrats that white liberals absolutely love who are super smart and have all the details and have all the plans put together and struggle to connect outside of the Democratic Party. Right. right. Um, she actually said, I don't know if you heard this, but she she gave a speech at Washington Square Park um, Monday, which is where I saw Bernie years a couple years ago. And she do- talked about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory and mentioned Frances Perkins, who was a more of a reformer. Um, that's a whole other issue, how she chose to mention her as opposed to like uh, Rose Schneider men. But what she said was she talked about Frances Perkins and, and how the, the you know, this tragedy helped spark certain reforms. She said, so what did one woman, one very persistent woman backed up by millions of people across this country get done? Social Security, unemployment insurance, abor- abolition of child labor, minimum wage, the right to join a union, even the very existence of the weekend. Big structural change, one woman and millions of people to back her up, which I thought is very kind of speaks to what you're talking about in terms of being kind of like a more horizontal movement connected person, which is what Sanders says, right? Not me, us, um, versus the way she's framing it. Yeah, and I think you can tell a lot by who people are courting and who they surround themselves and the way they go about obtaining power. She's made a choice to tell the Democratic establishment that she's going to be a team player, that she's just like Sanders in terms of all the great policies everyone loves, but, you know, she's going to play nice and not color outside the lines. When, you know, my fundamental view is that we need to not play nice, that the party that uh, she wants to be a team player with is a big part of the reason that we're here. I mean, they're, they're NAFTA, they're TPP, they're a financial bailout for the banks and screwing over homeowners and no bankers ultimately going to prison. So I want a candidate who is willing to break with that and fundamentally transform the party to be something different than what it's been over these last years. Right. You've also had a really interesting journey. I mean, obviously you run for Congress, but you've been in the media, you've been, uh, you worked at MSNBC, you're you're now at the Hill. Uh, I'm just curious, what's your take on how the media environment, the business has changed, especially in the last few years? I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm, but I'm curious to hear your, your view on it. Yeah, I think um, Trump has made people lose their minds a little bit. Mm-hmm. And obviously, for good reason, mind you. But, you know, the media it is fundamentally driven by a profit motive. He's been very good for ratings as he was rising, and he's continued to mostly be very good for for ratings. So there's this absolute fixation on his every insanity to the exclusion of a lot of other things, right? right? And there's also part of this playing to the white affluent liberal is a lot of hand-wringing about his breaking the norms and guardrails of our democracy. 
which honestly, as a progressive, it's the one thing about Trump that may end up being good. I mean, if you just want big change, a lot of those norms and guardrails are basically bullshit put in place <laughs> to keep people in line, right. frankly. So, you know, I'm just not as like concerned about his tone on Twitter yeah. as, and I think a lot of people say they're concerned about, a lot of people actually really love that about him, that he's just like absurd and doesn't care and doesn't follow the rules because those rules have screwed a lot of people over. So I think that's part of why there's a very distinct mismatch between what's focused on in the media and what actually matters to people in the country. I've talked a lot about, you know, I, I have a little bit of a different view on impeachment, I think, than a lot. I think if you're going to pursue impeachment, which I honestly think at this point the Democrats have waited too long and dicked around and it's too late, but if you're going to do it, people think D.C. is all corrupt. Yes, Trump is more brazen with it, but they're not impressed that his corruption is fundamentally different than all the rest of these people. Right. So it's not the corruption. They don't care what he said to Corey Lewandowski about Jeff Sessions in the Oval Office about yeah. Jim Comey. It's not some process thing on obstruction of justice. Like, go after him for the actual harm, right? The Muslim ban. Institutionalized cruelty at the border, right? Helping to inspire and encourage a domestic terrorist movement. If you want to go after him, those are the things, that's at least a starting place to focus on, rather than the type of type of stories that are important, I'm not saying they're not, but are the utter fixation of most of the media to the exclusion of almost everything else. Yeah. And um, you, do you want to talk a at all about two two things? Um, GM, the, stri the GM strike. Um, yeah. Also, you had a great monologue about the way that media nudging works and how you're encouraged to, to tell certain stories and not tell certain stories. And of course, you've been very critical of the role that MSNBC has played on the left. So those two things, I think, are related. Do you want to talk about those? Yeah, I think that's good. I think, um, you know, to me, one of the most important and fundamentally undercover dynamics of our generation is the decline of the labor union, right? You can look at the charts and you can see as rates of unionization have declined, so has gone the middle class. The, the trend and the, and the correlation is plain as day. And yet here we have over the past couple of years, one of the largest movements, labor movements, uprisings across the country that we've ever seen. And I'm not saying it hasn't gotten covered at all, but this should be one of the stories right. of the year. So we had, of course, the teachers movements across red America, which I covered and was on the ground for quite a bit when I was living in Kentucky at the time. I was working in West Virginia with Richard Ojeda. So I saw that up close normal, like middle-class white women taking this incredibly militant action, right? It was a, it was a crazy scene. And now we have GM going on strike. We have with tens of thousands of workers, we have Kaiser Permanente in California has taken a strike vote. That would be the largest labor action in, in I think about 30 years. And you have airline caterers who have also nationwide taken a vote to strike. So you have all of this energy around the labor movements. Americans uh, favor labor unions more than they ever have in our lifetime. And yet it gets very little. The, all the trends around that are covered very little. 
most of the major papers don't even have labor reporters anymore, right? It's just not a focus. And again, this goes into there's a huge class blind spot in the media. It's not nefarious. It's not a scheme. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just a reality of who populates the newsrooms, who they're surrounded with, and who their audience that they're ultimately playing to is. Who do advertisers want to reach? Affluent white liberals, most by and large. And so that's who the coverage is is ultimately playing towards. I mean, isn't that isn't isn't part of that have to do with who physically the report the people in the press are? I mean, in, in the old days, you had people who were working class in origin in in the media you had the, you know, the mike royko style voices right uh, jimmy breslin uh just, those people don't really exist anymore in 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 the national press anyway i mean they, they do in, lo- in the local media but for the most part in the op-ed pages you're not finding that those kinds of voices anymore except for brett stevens <laughs> right yeah exactly salt of the earth stevens salt of the yeah. earth yeah but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, just in my own little career, when I started at The Cycle and we're a panel show of four people, um, I was the only one of the four who was not from the Boston area. <laughs> so just to give you, like, and I love them all. They're all wonderful. But like, just to give you a sense of how insular it is, um, very rare that you find someone who actually came up from a, a blue collar working class background at all or you know, has a real sort of sense of rural America, red America, or any perspective that is outside of that kind of liberal, urban, neoliberal um, world. What was your upbringing like? Um, I grew <laughs> mine is funny. I grew up in this really rural, small town, King George County, Virginia. Um, and the whole economy is centered around a naval base. So it's kind of like the closest to socialism you can get in America. Right. <laughs> like everybody worked on the base. <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> and do you have siblings who also have um, names that are puns? Is that what you would call it? A crystal ball? I, is that a pun? I do have two older sisters. Their names are entirely normal. Okay. Paul and Heidi. Um, if you want the whole name story while we're on it, because uh, people always want to know. First of all, it really is my name. Uh, my parents really did name me that. They are so straight edged. Like they're not weird hippies or anything you would never. They're just like bourgeois middle class people. Um, but my dad is a, a physicist. And so he had done his Ph.D. dissertation on crystals. Oh, and wow. they just they liked the name. That's there cool. you go. Excellent. Wow. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Great story. Well, thanks for coming on. Yes, thanks for thank getting hopping so in your car and, dr- and driving to a place where, the, where you, there, there's broadband access and, yeah. and talking to us for a little bit today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Congrats on the podcast, thanks. guys. I really do love it. And um, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, Excellent. and you have to come on the show when you're in New York. I would love that. Yeah. We will make that happen. Great. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so, thanks much. so much. Take care, Crystal. Right. Bye, guys. Bye. That was great. Thanks for listening to Useful Idiots. Yes. Make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to us. uh, Find us on Spotify. And if you're on YouTube watching this, uh, subscribe to our videos. Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.